Welcome back. You're listening to The Hill by Thies Theatre. I'm Gabrielle. And I'm Nick. And last episode, we uh, related mostly from journal entries and news articles what happened in the aftermath of the arson that killed Mr. Lee. Um, It covered about a four-week period, mostly the month of June of 92. And it was written contemporaneously, uh, so it gives a fairly accurate and true chronicle of what we were going through. Well, I mean, what you were going through, I mean... Your mental and emotional state of mind was clear, but mine wasn't really made clear. Right, right. And, um, well, (laughs) it was clear to me and to others um, that you were kind of having a psychotic break, breakdown, right? Um, You know, I read a few journal entries last episode that kind of pointed to that. Yeah. But... Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I and I didn't really address or answer any of those entries uh, with that referenced me. Exactly, which is what we're going to get at today to uh, give Nick a chance uh, to tell his story versus me telling it for him, right? <laughs> um, okay, so so just to refresh your memory, though, here's just one one entry from the last time, uh, Nick was so lost since Mr. Lee's death. He was getting increasingly paranoid as the arson investigation progressed. Suddenly he saw conspiracies everywhere, at the hill, at his job, on the street. Everything was a sign. He walked through the streets for blocks on end with a quarter attached to his forehead, a quarter that didn't fall, a sign. He crossed busy roads without looking, forcing cars to stop for him because he thought he saw Tito after all this time. Um, He said uh, he talked to somebody that was Tito, a sign, uh, one of the production companies renting from Pacific Studios, his job, uh, had changed his name, their name from one such to none such. That one was really scary to me (laughs) because you were sure that that was an evil sign. You know? Well, it could have been. Who knows? Capitalism, you know, it's evil. (laughs) Whatever. Yeah, yeah. So it was obvious to you and others just from observing me. It was scary. Yeah, Uh, a psychotic break. Yeah. Okay. So, but it's 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 going to be difficult for me to relate what I was going through. Um, I'll try as I did in earlier podcast when I was um, had a similar crisis uh, that happened when I was under distress dealing with my brother Steve's addiction. uh, but I don't cl- classify these events in my life as breakdowns, uh, but as important transformations, uh, mental, emotional, and spiritual markers in my life. The, the various traumas I experienced in my life have become the basis of my most of my writing. That's and art. true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel a little defensive here, but I shouldn't because although. Our culture typically classifies these experiences through pathology, in other words, as mental illness. The research in recent years has explored them outside of that paradigm through um, cultural-specific ideas on where spirituality and psychosis sort of meet. Uh, They view psychosis, mysticism in a continuum a la Joseph Campbell right. and the hero's journey. Right, the hero's journey, true. And, um, and, and you know, someone may be, quote, out of touch with consensus reality, but they're actually very much in touch in 
the mythic, mystic realms. Um, like, for example, in Hindu culture, in Native American culture, uh, which have long recognized all of this. So yeah, definitely two different paradigms, right? Right. And I see, or I see an analogy in the latest Matrix film, the uh, Matrix Resurrections. Of course you do. <laughs> Why read Joseph Campbell when you can watch The Matrix, Nick? Right? Well, okay, yeah. But, you know, the film um, has a character in it, uh, Thomas and Anderson, who is the hero Neo on the red pill and who is creator of the Matrix uh, video game series, series based on his faint memories of Neo on the blue pill. So the conceit of the, the film is that the quote-unquote real world is Neo on the blue pill. So the artist on the red pill who is creating the video game, that psychologically sane person uh, <laughs> living, creating in the normal world is not in the real world. Are you following this? Because yeah. I've watched it twice and I still can't remember. Right. <laughs> you have to really like study this. So... Uh, what he's doing is just reliving or recreating memories uh, from the other world, the, uh, the true world. Or you could say he's recreating the faint memories of his psychosis, if you go to the other paradigm, right? Right. Uh, my memory of, of this time is also faint. I mostly just see it in flashes. But a few of my experiences and actions I do remember in some detail. Um, so this is sort of the confession of a madman, I guess. And... Uh, <laughs> But I want the hallucinations uh, I talk about classified as the way they sit in my mind then and today. Uh, they're more like the visions that came in historical Christianity, like uh, Moses in the burning bush <laughs> right. and uh, St. Paul on the road to Damascus. Uh, but also, I, I wasn't a Christian now, so I was uh, studying... Uh, other religions, especially Native American religions. So there's Black Elk's vision, and especially uh, Wovoka's. Wovoka and the ghost dance. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I was wearing my ghost dance shirt off and now dancing into trans-like states and wandering the streets after that. I, you know, I was in grief and guilt over Mr. Lee's death, and um, I started seeing visions, receiving signs. Right, and you uh, were also very paranoid, Nick, very paranoid. Yes, and, um, everybody was suspect to me, but yeah. but, say, but the saying is just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're, they aren't after you. <laughs> and so we talked about the knife fight that happened just the, the day after the arson fire, and, uh, you know, it was on the corner right outside the hill, mm -hmm. and uh, it wasn't really a a knife fight. It was more just a confrontation. The guy had a knife, and uh, he he was coming at me. And Blue, who, one of my friends who was standing all the time on the corner up there, he slid his knife on the ground over to me to make it a fair fight. Yeah, uh, there were two fire marshals right there. You know, they were investigating the fire. Yeah. And uh, I, I said to the guy, I didn't pick up the knife. I said to, I pointed to the two fire marshals. And he said to me, I don't care. I'll do time for killing you. Yeah. It was, it, it was almost like it was personal. And it, it was his job to do that or something. Uh, and he was waving his knife and spitting at me. And, uh, but I just stood there in kind of Tai Chi 
you know, hugging the tree position, which I was using all the time. And he, he eventually walked away. And there were three or four other people hanging out there at the corner. And uh, one of them knew who the guy was and said that he hung out at uh, St. Mark's place uh, where all the stolen goods were being sold mm-hmm. uh, on the sidewalk. And uh, he was known as White Boy. Yes, this white boy thing gets really crazy. Yeah. Because, go ahead. Yeah. Well, you know, and he was supposedly a kind of minor league mafia. And white boy graffiti was all over the Lower yeah, East Side. Yeah, and, yeah, and the two precinct, could, uh, the police, when I went to the precinct, they had told me they were looking for white boy. And, and they always called you white boy on yeah. the hill. Yeah, right. I was the, the strangers knew me as the white boy in the teepee. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I was paranoid. paranoid. With good reason. Right? Yeah, I was... Partially the, with good reason. <laughs> well, I was being... I was a hunter, but I was also the hunted. Yeah. And, uh, you know, following all these tags all the time, seeing white boy tag up there, I, what the hell was that about, right? And uh, I think that's where I started my hero's journey. Uh, that's where I swallowed the blue pill from the Matrix, and uh, I shaved my head, leaving only just a long tuft of hair at the back. Mm-hmm. So I looked pretty freaky walking the streets. And um, you, from the beginning, when we put up the teepee, you worked mostly my job, my day job at Pacific Studios. Yeah. So I, I had free reign to explore the hill and live at the hill right because it was best for you to do that on the hill while i did all of the other stuff including my drawings and everything else that i needed the warehouse of your job for right so it worked out really well actually yeah Yeah. so i was using the tarot when i first got up there to explore the metaphysics but uh, my research into the native american religions and chinese geomancy where where the hill was the mouth of the dragon Mm -hmm. Uh, so my metaphysical exploration started uh, centering on the geography, the earth. Well, the city, not so much the earth, but the sidewalks, the streets, the buildings, and all the graffiti. I was looking for signs uh, on the walls and such. Yes, you were. And, <laughs> and then I was calling on the animal spirits you know, to guide me. I mean, the squirrel, the big squirrel, the dance I was doing all the time, creating uh, uh, my name, Squirrel, right? And um, also I was looking to uh, the eagle and turtle. Uh, they became important, especially Tortuga, the turtle who was at the center of all the interactions with Mr. Lee mm-hmm. that I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, these were the animals I was seeking guidance But from. now do tell, how does this all relate to the Matrix? Very important. Well, you know, yeah. Well, I was Neo, the hero at the center of the world, the universe. Of course. At the mouth of, of the dragon. Of course you're the center of the universe. Well, it's, yeah. So my actions would either save or end the world. Of same course. as Neo, right? Yes. So I, I never just walked the streets. I walked slowly and deliberately like Tortuga. Or I flew quickly from car to car on the sidewalk. You know, Tortuga, ego moving down the streets, you know, in my hunt. And um, one day when I was, well, walking, sort of, (laughs) in the East Village, a homeless man who was camped out next to a bodega on, like, 2nd Avenue in, you know, 4th or 5th Street or something like that, he was, uh, he he wanted to show me something. He was calling me over. It was... uh, 
he, he was, or he seemed like he was uh, mute. He was unable to talk. He was just using gestures to get me over there. And he, he took out a black Sharpie and he sketched a figure on a piece of cardboard. It, the cardboard was about the size of your um, drawings, your canvas drawings, so like two foot by four foot. And as he was finish, finishing the drawing, I sat down next to him and started weeping. Uh, it was a portrait of Mr. Lee. I mean, yeah, your portrait. I remember I mean, you told me that at the I time. I mean, it was only just slightly transformed from your drawing. <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. But uh, Mr. Lee was in the drawing, not hunched over like in your portrait, but standing erect and holding one hand up as if in a greeting, you know. And, uh, and I remember two people came out of the bodega as I sat there crying, and one of them was pointing excitedly at me and saying, look, he's caught another one. So evidently, this homeless man uh, had done the same to others as what he had done to me, which is, you know, overwhelm them with the miracle of being able to read their thoughts, their mind, their soul, and detail it in some kind of drawing, you know? Yeah. It was just still sticks in me. I, and I, I don't remember how I recovered or walked away from that, but it was that same day or maybe the next day that I met another quote-unquote mentally ill person, mm -hmm. another fellow traveler on the hero's journey, <laughs> and um, the journey through this magic land of spirits and whatever. And um, he was sitting on the steps of a, a building on, in the East Village, and uh, I sat down next to him and gave him a Winston Eagle you mm -hmm. know, tobacco and had a smoke with him. He, uh, he reminded me of Tito in his look and his soft-spoken mannerism. Uh, and he told me his life story, uh, same as Tito had told it to me inside the teepee. Yeah, Tito, which I hadn't seen in months, you know. Yeah, since. yeah. And um, he, he showed me a, a blue tattoo that was over his heart, and it was the name of his life partner, uh, his dead wife, who still guided him in his journey. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. And four letters, L-U-N-A, Luna. Do you want to know something weird, a quick aside? Our tenant just came down with her six-year-old daughter. She had a little package that she wanted to show me, ostensibly candy, like sucrets kind of yeah. stuff. And I opened it up, and it was a little uh, bat inside, but its name was Luna. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Luna over his heart. Uh, and it got me thinking of Mr. Lee again, right? Our Tortuga Luna, Tortuga Soul conversations uh, I can't remember if I told him about Mr. Lee or Tortuga or Squirrel or Eagle or anything but I do remember that we did talk about all the magic and spiritual signs that we were each experiencing and trying to decipher <laughs> how to read them you know yeah and uh, uh, and he told me a story about how he had recently come across a small dog that had been leashed to a tree and left there and how he had sat down next to it to keep it company, and it sat in his lap, and 
how the owner had eventually come to retrieve it. And he said to the owner, do you know what the word dog spelled backwards is? And the owner sat down and started crying, you know, when he said that, you know, dog, God, right? Who is man's best friend? Jesus, God, or, you know, the animals we share the earth with. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's hard to explain the transformative effect that had on me, just that story. And the story coming from this fellow traveler, right? Yeah. yeah. And, um, but I felt like St. Paul at Damascus when he was struck down by the voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Right? And I was thinking of the animals that I had killed in my life. Um, so it wasn't a voice from God. It was just a, a consciousness of, of my life. And, um, and I realized that I wasn't just thinking guidance from these animals, but also absolution. Yes, absolution. Uh, all the crimes I com- committed against them, you know, during my life. Uh, you know, I, I had... Uh, yeah, I mean, absolution is a big theme <laughs> for us, <laughs> for this entire story. Um, but uh, it's also a theme in our lives because we're vegan. Um, we've been vegan for about nine years now, approximately. And before that, we were vegetarian for a number of years. And um, and it has a lot to do with all of these stories that we're telling um, our fellow animals right. on this earth and that we can't participate in this torture. And right. torture I mean, we committed ourselves. Right. right? And, and mostly it goes unseen. It's factory farms. People don't really kill the animals that they eat. They just get them as meat, but I grew up on a farm. And they don't make the association, but you did, exactly. Yeah, I grew up on a farm, and so I trapped and hunted and slaughtered all kinds of animals. Uh, uh, I I remember when I was real young on the farm, I would be tasked with uh, feeding the spring chickens. And spring chickens are chickens that are just raised for meat. What There was a factory egg farm near us, and back then, I don't know if they can now, but you couldn't tell whether uh, an egg had a rooster or a hen in it. And of mm-hmm. course, all they want was the hen. So 50% of the chicks that were born were worthless to them. So they gave them to us. And then we would raise them as spring chickens, which means that you would feed them for six weeks grain and then slaughter them for meat. Right? Name them, probably. No, <laughs> they were just, you know, they were like, 50 chicks yeah. and I'd come out in the morning and I'd feed them it was nice you know because they see me come out and they come running to me oh, God. and you know but then when I was uh, 11 years old approximately I, I was tasked with um, you know with slaughtering them and that's the memory that the combo of them feeding them and then killing them you know the chicks that had come up running to me now I would grab them by the head and uh, snap my wrist and the head would come off and the body would be running around that saying is true chickens with chickens with their head running around with their heads right right so you have head. all these spring chickens running around with their heads cut off and uh um you know so that's back then it was i you know these flashes of slaughter 
uh, are now haunting me, right? Yeah. Back then... Uh, you don't give them any thought when you're no, raised that way. No, not when you're raised that way, or not when you don't have a consciousness that I'm now getting from the... I don't know where. Well, which is what they mean by enlightenment, or awakening, or woke, which right. you're or not allowed they, to say anymore now. No, right? but what it's they mean up by... To the horrors in your life... Yeah. But it's also th that you have traumatic memories that you bury. Exactly. And they, they don't come out except when they come out, you know, yeah. when you're going through some kind of experience, mm -hmm. crisis or whatever. Uh, the, 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 more, the most horrific memory I have back then is about snapping turtles. Yeah, okay, trigger warning on this one, yeah. everybody. Jesus yeah, because Christ, this is horrible. we used to trap and... Uh, trap and uh, yeah. slaughter turtles for our own meat but also to sell and so you'd put a cage out in the river and uh, the cage would have bait in it and the top of the cage would be a little bit above the water line mm -hmm. so the turtle would go in there and then you know he'd be caught in the trap but he'd be alive because he could come to the surface right mm -hmm. and then you'd bring the turtle back to the farm and you'd slaughter it but the way you do it was you'd take like a pair of pliers and stick it in front of the turtle. He'd come to snap and you grab his beak, pull it out and then chop off its head with an ax and uh, toss the head to the side. But the head would be there on the ground um, and the head would keep moving. The, the beak would keep opening and closing the whole time you cleaned the turtle. And the way you would start cleaning the turtle is you'd roll it on its back and there'd be a uh, shell plate on its belly and you would cut around that plate. And while you were cutting it, the turtle would be fighting you with its feet, trying to stop you wherever you touched it. So it was, you know, very horrific. And uh, so, you know, Tortuga Luna, Mr. Lee's turtle, was the chief animal spirit I was seeking absolution from and hopefully guidance from but also the thousands of uh, other animals that I killed the mink and muskrats that I trapped and skinned for their fur our basement when I was a kid was full of furs hanging there drying mm -hmm. and uh, I think I started again around 11 or 12 years old started trapping and uh, skinning the the muskrat and the mink were the ones that brought the money in. And when we were on the hill, this was a time when women were, they, a lot of them had stopped wearing furs because there were activists out there, animal activists, throwing red paint on their like fur coats. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So many of these women were either afraid of getting red paint thrown on them or they had a change of consciousness. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they were bringing up their furs to donate them at the teepee, I guess, because they thought we were Indians and it was all right for us to have furs, and, but whatever. Uh, and I brought the furs down. Well, there was a room I had found in an in the, uh, abandoned subway line, a, a tunnel that went underneath the Manhattan Bridge. I found it by chasing down the guy who used to snatch purses and run through the hill and so implicated everybody on the hill. The cops had come up after the purse was stolen. So I followed where he went, and he went um, underneath the structure of the bridge down into this abandoned subway line that went between Manhattan and Brooklyn. And I went down there, and I found where he went through the purses and left the purses and things he didn't want 
discarded. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I was going to do. I'd wait down there for him, but I don't know what I was going to do if I ever caught him, right? <laughs> but anyway, while I was down there, I found a room, a big 20 by 20 foot room, like a 12 foot ceiling, and, um, and I hooked up uh, lighting in there. Uh, the subway workers, uh, maintenance workers, have this uh, uh, lighting fixture that they, what they do is they put five light bulbs together. I don't know if they're 120, I mean 110 or 220 volt, but they have to run it off the uh, third rail, which has real high electricity. Oh, they yeah. always say, watch the third rail, yeah. right? Because it can kill you. It's a metaphor. The third rail of politics, the yeah. third rail. <laughs> right. right. But anyway, the electric came off that third rail. So this fixture that they made that had five bulbs in it, I guess, distributed the voltage. But when you'd hook it up, it'd flare up, you know, like a, like a little spark, you know, mm. big spark. And so anyway, I had this uh, lit up room down there. Do you that, know how many ways... You should have died during this. Well, yeah, hill. Or both of us, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm listening to you, and I'm like, oh my god. Well, anyway, so no the wonder story, we didn't want to face any of this. The yeah. story is that I had a, I was directed to bring the furs down there for my absolution, and I had to carry the furs now from the Manhattan side to the Brooklyn. What do you side. mean directed? Directed? What do you mean? Well, I mean, not by some voice or some, but somehow I knew Muskrat. Uh, I was going to mention that earlier. Yeah, muskrat, what you trapped, also figures very prominently in the Native American creation story. Right, exactly. So I had trapped muskrat all these years, skinned him and everything, yeah. and he tasked me with bringing his furs, the furs of his relatives, um, you know, over to Brooklyn. And, you know, I, th I was at the center of the universe. And Manhattan, to me, was... Turtle Island of the Native American creation story, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the story where uh, various animals tried to swim down and bring the dirt up to put on the back of the giant turtle to create Earth. Earth, yes. Right, and they all failed, they all died. That's the creation myth. Right, except for muskrat, muskrat. and mm -hmm. muskrat was able to do it. Mm -hmm. So he created Earth by putting the Earth from the ocean floor up on top of the Turtle's turtle. Turtle's back. Right, mm -hmm. and... Uh, so I had to carry these furs for muskrat over to Brooklyn through, the tunnel was pitch black and it must have taken me, you know, I was sweating and probably black as everything because I was just crawling through like a muskrat <laughs> through this tunnel until I got to Brooklyn and um, I saw a light and uh, I climbed out, and once I was on land, I needed to find a, a direction or a directive to where to carry, a destination where to carry the fur. And uh, I had um, some talismans from my medicine bag with me, but I reached into my pocket and I got a quarter because a quarter has the eagle emblem on it. Mm -hmm. And I put the eagle, the quarter on my head, the emblem against my skin, and I was looking to see what direction to go, uh, moving my head around. <laughs> and the quarter miraculously stuck to my head. I said, oh, shit. Okay, direct me. And so I walked with the furs, with the quarter directing me, with the eagle directing me. And 
I found a place, it was on the East River, I don't know exactly where, and I can't remember if the quarter fell off there or I just knew it was the spot, but I laid the furs down next to the river and set them free. And uh, I always carried a, um, these days, I always carried an, a unique umbrella that I had bought in Chinatown. It was uh, just a foot long and it fit into my back pocket when it was folded closed. And I brought the umbrella out when I thought that uh, someone was hunting me, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd put it over my head and walk. And so I brought the, uh, the umbrella out to walk back to Manhattan. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Any relation to a tinfoil hat? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, yeah, I guess tinfoil hats are supposed to... Uh, uh, keep thoughts out or something from aliens or, you know, to keep thoughts away. I was... I actually don't know what they're supposed to do. Well, I don't either, but I think that's what they're meant for, to reflect things away from your mind. <laughs> okay. But I was trying to bring thoughts in, so I don't think, you know. But, I mean, a lot of people were looking for white boy. Mm -hmm. And um, who? The ADA uh, gold bomb, right? Mm -hmm. Green bomb. Green bomb, mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, Spencer, the drug lord, both yes. of them, and the corrupt cops who were working for either one or the other. Right. So they were all looking for a white boy. I was looking for a white boy, but I didn't know whether I was the white boy they were looking for. So I was under the umbrella a lot of times when I was walking and in the shadows during yeah. the day. Um, uh, so I, I guess all this sort of gives a a picture of what my mental state, my spiritual state was at that time. And this final stage of the hero's journey is when, with some ease or difficulty, one or the other, the hero exits the, the world of uh, magic and myth and returns to the ordinary world. And I can't remember whether the exit was easy or difficult. I knew it took a long time. Yes. And I, in some ways, Neither one of us really exited it. I was going to say, it took at least 32 years <laughs> so far. Right, right yeah. to relate the story here. Yeah. yeah, but the thing is, though, we did leave. Yeah. Um, my journal entry, let's see, it was Thursday, June 25th, 92. Mr. Lee died May 29th, so about a month after the arson. Uh, we ended the last episode by reading that. I just want to repeat it quickly. I went back home and slept by the front window closest to the house door for a while, wanting to be sure I would hear Nick coming home, but he didn't come. A few hours later when I awoke, I went back to the hill. Nick was in the teepee, crying, afraid, lost. So my next entry was not until six months later. But I recounted six months later, you know, deciding I needed to, to keep writing and to uh, not drop journaling. Uh, I needed to keep up. So I wrote six months later what happened at the end of that day where I found Nick uh, lost and afraid and crying in the teepee. So I wrote, later that day, we took down the cover and the drawings, leaving only the poles gave our few belongings away, and left the hill for what we thought would be the last time. Uh, we knew we were balancing on a precipice and that it was necessary to leave. Slowly, we began a new life. We did middle-class things like buy a new car. 
We fixed up the apartment. We went away on weekends. We tried desperately, desperately, <laughs> I remember this, to shake the feeling that it was too late, that we probably had HIV meanwhile, or that we would lose each other, that we would be punished. But the hill continued as before. Sometimes we would drive by it. The poles were still there, skeleton-like. Right. It must have been during the, these, these six months uh, that I recovered or ended my journey, my hero's journey. Yeah. I, I had been graced with uh, two visions, visions that I'll never forget. One was of the two of us standing on the cliff of Turtle Island. Uh, it was not really us, but us as aboriginals or Adam and Eve looking out over all creation. Uh, the journey was over. The world had been saved. And the other vision was of eagle and turtle. Yeah, this, this uh, vision we later uh, made another teepee out of. A memorial teepee to Mr. Well, Lee. Well, we'll talk about we'll that. We'll talk about that later. But, yeah, the, the design came from this vision. Right. And uh, we, we made a, a film about it called Tatuga Crawl uh, just a little bit before we started working on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think we should end, uh, I want to end the episode with part of the narration from the film and maybe the uh, tribute or homage you did for Mr. Yes, Lee. Yes, yes. Um, so you go ahead and read uh, the film's narration, yeah. or pieces of it at least. Right. <clears throat> Mr. Lee lived next to us in the hut he had built. So the turtle pond was midway between us. Although Mr. Lee spoke no English, only Chinese and a little Spanish, we would have simple animated conversations every day about Tortuga. One continuing argument was, Tortuga belongs to the sun. No, 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 Tortuga belongs to the moon. We siphoned electricity from the city streetlight, and I hooked up a large aquarium aerator in the pond so that the water would freeze during the winter. But once we had to be away from the teepee in the shantytown for three weeks, and the pond with Tortuga in it froze over, and Mr. Lee's and my argument turned ontological. Tortuga is dead. No, no, Tortuga is alive. Because they can pull their head and feet, all their flesh in except their tail into their hard shell, snapping turtles have only one natural predator besides man. The American eagle is large enough, strong enough to grab hold of this snapping turtle by its tail and fly up into the air dropping Tortuga on a hard surface on a boulder from a great height, crack opens his shell, exposing the flesh. Although the fire happened near dawn, Mr. Lee would have normally been outside already, as I would have been, except that I hadn't slept in the teepee that night. When I did arrive there at 8 a.m., half the shantytown was in the black rubble and five or six police detectives were standing around. Walking up and around the partially burnt teepee, I walked right past Mr. Lee without noticing him. I asked one of the detectives, what's going on? There had been dozens of fires on the hill in the two years we'd been there. Firemen always arrived, but never police. 
Somebody died. The detective turned and pointed. A few feet away was what looked like a mannequin. Bits of clothing, but no features. Amazingly, the charred, dead body was stand, still standing in a half crouch with outstretched arms, res resembling a Tai Chi pose. It was Mr. Lee. I fell to the ground. I fell even deeper into some recess of my soul. The pond ice melted almost simultaneously to Mr. Lee's death, and when the giant turtle crawled out of the water, I crawled with him. I vowed to follow this spirit animal to wherever he led me. In the following days, to those who knew me, they saw someone who was in psychosis, but I knew then, as I know now, that my guilt and grief was demanding a necessary journey. Eventually, I was given the vision I had sought and would follow for the rest of my life. I saw Eagle grab Tortuga tail, attempting to pull his prey into the air, but Tortuga held fast to the earth. Time froze, and then earth and time were pulled backwards in the great struggle. I had carried Tortuga to Prospect Park Pond to release him. He crawled into the water to swim away, and now, with the strength and truth of my vision, I began my crawl back into the past and forward into the future. Mr. Lee had called his hut the House of United Nations, so I knew where I needed to go, but my journey to the United Nations building on 42nd Street would be difficult, especially because it would need to be a Tortuga crawl. Difficult physically to crawl the four miles, but also difficult because of the scrutiny that the crawling would attract. So the least populated, safest route would be nighttime hours along the East River. I've been collecting turtle emblems over the past 30 years. Sometimes I forget why I collect them. Regret and grief often haunt, haunt silently even as they so purposely guide one's life and destiny. Uh, yeah. mm -hmm. So go ahead, I guess, read your tribute now. Yes, I, I wrote this tribute to read to all of the residents on the Hill when we had the ceremony um, after his death, and then I also read it to the press who were waiting at the perimeter, of, you know, which we told you about how that went down last episode. So here, here's the uh, the tribute. Did you read it or did Margaret read it? Margaret read it because my hands were shaking so right, much right. I couldn't hold the piece of paper. I was in bad shape too, mm -hmm. in different ways than you, but right. Margaret read it, yeah. We are standing in the ruins of Mr. Lee's home. Mr. Lee built his home without sawing boards, without piercing nails, without pounding a hammer. It was built in silence and without violence. His home, a fantastical creation of carefully chosen treasures from the streets of the city, all lovingly knotted together with brightly colored ribbons and cloth, was not simply his shelter from the elements. It was his spiritual sanctuary, his temple. Every morning he began the day with a meditation upon his temple. He was often seen sitting on his roof, painstakingly retying, rearranging and adding to the visual feast of images, speaking all the while in a mixture of Cantonese and Spanish. 
He would write Chinese characters in volumes on the skids and cardboard and mattresses that graced the outer walls of his temple. Names, many names, invitations to queens and messages to beholders were the occasional translations. Once satisfied with his work, he would leave to return again at dusk. He always carried with him a bag of precious belongings, dozens of snapshots of smiling people, religious symbols, remnants and discards from the lives of others, and five handmade, handwritten passports, speaking of hundreds of wives, thousands of children, and many more grandchildren. Mr. Lee had no family here that we knew of. We learned from him one day that he was born in China, grew up in Cuba, and fled to this country during the revolution. Did he have to leave his family behind, mother and father, wife and children? Did he dream of one day being reunited with them? Was his heart full of them? We were his neighbors here. We came to the hill as artists, wanting to erect a memorial to those massacred at Wounded Knee and to the disenfranchised of today. We had come to learn and to explore our lives within a structure that was also both home and temple to a people once, a people whose body of knowledge and wisdom was so great that it should have saved the world. Instead, it was decimated by the lethal combination of arrogance, greed, and ignorance. And it just never ends, does it? Mr. Lee, you taught me the meaning of the word artist. I will strive all my life to incorporate what you have taught me about patience, purity of purpose, and devotion to the truths we carry with us somewhere in our hearts. The knots you forged extended far beyond the confines of your temple. The power of your bonds brought the three of us together. It united your other neighbors, who were proud to show off your creations to the many people who shared the fascination with your incredible home and wanted to know the man who built it. You quietly created your own world among your neighbors here on the hill, possibly the only community anywhere that was able to welcome and coexist with an extraordinary soul such as you. Yeah. All right. Uh Next episode, we'll talk about when and how the shantytown finally came down and what happened to the people, the residents there, as far as we know. All right. Again, feel free to write us on this or any topic at podcast at thievestheater.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to like, subscribe, and click the bell so you know when our next episode is out. Check out our website at thievestheater.org and follow us on Instagram, and Facebook, and Twitter at TP on the Hill. That's T-I-P-I on the Hill. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you. See you next time.